So if you have your Bibles, electronic devices, you can click to turn to with me. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to look at 15 verses. So we're looking at a large chunk of scripture today. And so I'm going to try to talk fast and you're going to have to listen fast uh, because I've got some information for you. And I, 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 and so I, I want to jump ahead uh, because there's something in this message and I'll, I'll let you know when it comes that God spoke to me very clearly and there was like an aha moment for me. And I hope there's an aha moment for you this morning. I hope that communicates in this message. And so we've been journeying through 2 Corinthians together. Uh, we've been just going verse by verse and paragraph by paragraph. And it's amazing to me how much of this book so easily translates into the culture and time in which we live. And so 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 1 through 15 is what we're going to look at today. And Paul had, had sent this as the second letter that we have. He actually sent three letters, 1 Corinthians. There's a letter in between 1 and 2 Corinthians, and then this letter. And so we have 1 and 2 Corinthians in our Bible. And so Paul had planted the church. He'd been there 18 months. He loved them. Uh, they knew him. He went on some missionary journeys. And so they were like, if you will, they were emailing back and forth. And Paul is trying to help them with some of their spiritual maturity and some of their questions. Now we come to a section of Scripture that all of a sudden Paul like pulls off his pastor hat and puts on the dad hat. And it's, it's distinct in the Scripture that all of a sudden it's like, you know what? It's like he is putting on the dad hat. It's like the conversation that a dad might have with a daughter or a son before, before they get married and they start their life and sit them down on the front porch and say, hey, I have some advice for you. I have some things that I want to tell you. And he shares some things out of deep love and deep concern for him. See, this is Paul. And Paul comes to the place with the Corinthians, and he says, I've given you all this theology, I've taught you all of these things, and now, now I think there's some things that you need to know that are important for you to understand how to live out Christianity. But Christ Christianity is, is the goal of a Christian is to live it out, is it not? It's not just knowledge. It's not just information. That's why Paul over and over and said that this issue of knowledge, knowledge only can be toxic. Knowledge only can tear down. But knowledge with love and knowledge with grace builds up people. And so Paul helped them to understand this. And so now Paul puts on the dad hat sitting on the, the front porch and said, there's three things, kids. There's three things that you need to know that I want to warn you about that you need to make take particular, make particular attention to in your Christian life. And the first one is this, and the first one doesn't sound that important on the surface. I mean, it's like, it sounds important, but it's like, duh, we're Christians, we should know that. And so the first one, he just starts out very basic, but listen, this bleeds into where he's really concerned. You know what he's really concerned about? He's really concerned about false prophets. That some people in their day had risen up in social media world having dreams and visions and false prophets, and it was confusing the believers. It was confusing. See, that's where he's headed this morning. That's what he's concerned about. It's concerning in his time. It's concerning in our time. Is it not? And so the first thing, the first principle that Paul said is this. He says, I, I just need you to know your relationship to God must be a priority. Your relationship to God, and all of us in this room would say, well, of course it should. We're Christians. I mean, of course, of course he's going to say, look, listen to what he says. Verse 2, he says, he says, for I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. So now he defines out jealousy uh, because I've promised you in marriage to one husband to pre present you a pure virgin to Christ. And so all of a sudden when we hear that word jealousy in our culture, in our context, sometimes we look at that word as a negative word. 
We look at that word as a divisive word. We look at that word to where, you know, this issue of jealousy, it leads to bitterness, resentment, division, and some of these other things. But Paul is helping us to understand there's a healthy jealousy, there's an unhealthy jealousy. There's a godly jealousy and there's an ungodly jealousy. This issue of godly jealousy is what he's saying. It, it demands loyalty from the person that you love. It demands this relationship from someone that you love, loyalty. I mean, I mean it, it's, it's kind of a funny story. It's a funny story to me. I hope it's funny to you. But it's a true story. A pastor friend of mine just recently went out of town to like a pastor's conference. He wanted his wife to go. She couldn't go with him. Uh, so, so he went, and, and so one night he's headed out to dinner with the guys, and it was a really nice place, and, and so he sent a text back to his wife, and so he texted his wife, and, um, and, and, and he said this. He said, I'm, I'm having a great time. I just want you to know I wish you were here. And, um, and so uh, all of a sudden, as soon as he hit send, his phone like lit up, and he said, wow, that's quick response. And he looked, and it's like all caps, call me now. And he said then it was an, like an exclamation point, and every angry, angry emotion, emoji known to man was like she, she... And he goes, well, what is up with her? And so he, he decided to scroll back up, and he scrolled back up to see what he texted. And he scrolled back up to see what he, what he texted, and, and he texted this. He says, I'm having a great time. I just want you to know I wish you were her. Yeah, and he couldn't cl claim like autocorrect, right? Because, I mean, the E was really important in that text, right? I mean, we'd all admit that, right? He dropped the E, he forgot the E, he misspelled the word, he couldn't claim autocorrect, and she was not happy. Listen, any wife has a, has a any, any wife that suspects her husband flirting with, a, with another woman, she has a right to be jealous, right? And, it, and if she's not jealous, then like something's wrong in the relationship to demand ultimate loyalty. This is what Paul is saying about God. God's a jealous God. Exodus 18 tells us he demands loyalty from us. He, 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 doesn't, he doesn't want any rivals. He doesn't tolerate any rivals. He wants exclusive loyalty from the ones he loves. And then, then he goes into a marriage illustration that, that they understood that we may not understand in our culture. So I'll help you with that. In first century, in, in the Corinthian culture, in the first century, the engagement uh, period in marriage was much different than ours. It wasn't entered into lightly, and you didn't get out of it lightly. When you entered into the engagement period, it was a two-year period. And so it was the father of the bride's responsibility to make sure that in that two-year period there was, there, was, there was purity. And the, the, the daughter still lived at home and some of those things, but that was his job to make sure that there was still purity in the relationship. The only way you got out of an engagement period in, in their time was like a certificate of divorce. I mean, there was already this commitment made. And so now Paul uses that illustration and says, you know what, in some ways I'm like, I'm like the father of the bride. And you're the church, you're the bride of Christ, and one day Jesus Christ is coming back for, for the church and, and to present to him uh, someone that is pure. And I want to help you with the issue of loyalty. When you look at this issue of jealous for the truth, because Paul talks about this issue of jealous for the truth, I mean, we should be jealous for the truth of matters that are important to us, right? I mean, when I, when I get on an airplane, I don't know if you're like me, but when I get on an airplane, I want a pilot that is jealous for the truth. I don't want a pilot that is careless with the truth. When I have surgery, I want a surgeon that is what? I want a surgeon that is jealous for the truth. I do not want a surgeon that is careless with the truth. When it's matters of importance, 
We want somebody that is like jealous for the truth. And, and when it comes to this issue of eternal life, when it comes to this issue of salvation, then we would all admit this is an important area of life. It's an important issue. And Paul was pressing into them and said, you need to demand the truth. You need to live by the truth. Fact is, you need to get the truth lived out in your life. And that's why he tells them, he says, listen, I'm telling you, there's going to be some false prophets that are going to come. And you need to make God a priority in your life. And so the question is, listen, the question is for us, the question that I had in my study, what does it mean to make God number one in your life? What does it mean to make him a priority? This is a huge question. What is, I'm, how do we do that? Now, if you've been around church any time, you, you would kind of hear a term, and maybe you haven't been around church, and so this, time, this term would kind of be kind of weird to you. But a lot of Christians, the way they're going to answer that, they're going to say, oh, a quiet time. And a quiet time is just a Christian way of saying it's a time that we make open up the Scriptures, we pray, uh, we read our Bible, and then we go on with our day. It's, it's a quiet time. It's a time that we shut off the world. It's a time that, that we meet with God. But I'm going to press back in. How do you have a quiet time? What does the Bible say? What does the Bible say is that time? I mean, what is happening in you when you meet with, when, when you read Scripture? What is happening with God? What does is, what is that time look? See, this is how we answer this question determines everything. This is Paul's point. Maybe you've never thought of it in this details. And listen, I'm not going to give you some ritual to go through because Scripture never says that. But I am going to tell you the principles. I am going to tell you what the Scriptures say. So Simon Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 2, fleshes this out for us. And I saw a word, I saw a phrase in here that changed everything about how I approach this time. Verse 1, he says, Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. Like a newborn infant's desire the pure milk of the word. So now all of a sudden he's bringing, he's bringing the word into this. Get rid of some things. Desire the word. Desire the word of God. So that, so that by it you may grow up into your salvation if, so now he's, if you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, if you're a believer, if you're a Christian, as you come to him a living stone rejected by people but chosen and honored by God, you yourselves are living stones, a spiritual house being built up to a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so Simon Peter teaches one of the identifying marks of a believer is desire for his word. A desire to open his word, a desire to read his word, a desire to know his word. So then what happens when the desire shows up? What happens in that moment? What happens in a quiet time? What happens when you approach God in his word? What, what is God doing in that time? What are you doing in that time? So, so let me, here's what's happening. You draw near to the presence of God through his word. And I don't know that I've ever looked at it quite like that. As a believer, I'm, I'm assuming we all read our Bibles. And so I'm just making that assumption. So I can tell you what happens in my life when I have that quiet time, if you want to phrase it like that, if you want to say that. I get up, I get up early in the mornings. First thing I do, I make a ginormous pot of coffee. I, I mean, I don't need a cup. I need the whole pot. I need, fact is, my wife and I, it's kind of funny. We don't even, we can't even share coffee in our house because I, I just need the whole pot. And so she has her Keurig and I, I'm old school. I like drip coffee. I like good coffee. E listen, even when I travel, I travel with a coffee maker. I got a problem. I know. 
So I need the whole pot of coffee. And so I am not a morning person. You know what? I, I, anyway, anyway, I need to move on. You don't need to hear my issues with coffee. And so I make a whole pot of coffee, and then I grab my, um, my, my, my phone while I'm counting down the minutes when it's going to be done. And I pull up my app, my Life Journal uh, app. I get a Bible. I, I get a cup of coffee. I sit down. I say a quick prayer that is like, speak to me, something like that. I start reading. I read. I, I'll do some observation. I'll do a, a, a one-sentence prayer. And then I'm gone. Because why? Because I got a lot to do. I got a schedule. I got a lot to do. And so I, that's how I typically have entered that. But you see that phrase. I don't know if you guys can put that verse back up, Justin. Um, if you can put that verse, and so the, the verse preceding, the, the verse, verse four, as you come to him, change my life. It's the Greek word prosurchima. It's a Greek word, just simple word prosurchima means to approach. And so when you study this word, you learn that this is tied into the Old Testament. It comes out of Septuagint. The Septuagint was just a Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. And this word prosurchima is what, the, it was what the high priest would do in the Old Testament. And so once a year, the high priest would go behind the curtains. You know the veil in the Holy of Holies that separated God from man? And the high priest would go in behind the curtain, and God couldn't look on sin. And if he had one unconfessed sin, the guy could, like, die, that guy. And so once a year, the high priest would go behind the curtain for the people to ask for forgiveness of, of sins for the people. It was this word prosurchima. And so his ritual started the night before with what he ate, what he wore, how he slept, when he got up, what he ate, and then the clothes. And then he had to like confess every sin, and he made sure that every sin was confessed. In fact, his tradition holds, and listen, I've been to Israel twice and, and going again in 2022. We have a trip scheduled in 2022 to take a group of people. And so I've been there twice. I've asked this question all the time, and I have answers to this, that they actually would take a rope and tie a rope around the priest, and they would put bells on him in case he got into the Holy of Holies and he had forgotten to confess one sin that the guy would die. And so if all of a sudden if they no longer heard the bells ringing, they would think the worst and they could at least drag his body out because nobody could go in and get him. And when Jesus Christ died on the cross for us, what happened when he died on the cross for us, the veil in the temple was split top to bottom which means now we don't have to go through a priest, we don't have to go through a pastor, we don't have to go through a person, that we got 24 access to God. We got 24 access to Him. And then you look at this and you realize that because of that, what Hebrews says is we can approach God not with fear, not with concern, but we can approach God, approach God with confidence that we're meeting with Him. Now it makes sense when Simon Peter says there's some things you're going to need to get rid of. As you come to him, as you approach him, I just, got, I just got to be honest with you. I think there's some times I've approached this time of quiet time, of reading of scripture, a little bit flippant. A little bit, you know what? I just got to, I just got to, I got to get through this. Because I got things to do. I got appointments. I got some other things. I don't know until this that I've ever looked at this like this. Prosurchima. 
to approach Him to where you take time. And maybe you confess some sins. Maybe you look back on the day before and say, you know what, the way I responded to my wife, total sin. The way I handled that issue at the office, Lord, I need to do better next time. The way I responded in that situation, Lord, I just need to tell you, I'm going to humble myself. You're an all-consuming fire. I need to ask for forgiveness. And when someone says something to me like that again, I'm going to react differently. I'm going to learn how to love my neighbor as myself. I'm going to learn how to bless those who hurt me. I'm going to learn how to forgive. Maybe there's someone you need to, I'm going to forgive. Lord, thank you for the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for me on the cross because now I can come into your presence. Thank you for the blood of Christ because it allows me to draw near to you. The only way, listen, the only way that we can approach God is with honesty. And you take a moment and you humble yourself. You reflect on the day before. You remind yourself that God is good. Hebrews 11.6 gives us a definition of faith. And he says, now without faith it is impossible to please God. Since the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. I just want you to know this morning that I am all for Bible study. And I, and I am all for, for, for intellectual study. I mean, I, have, I am back in seminary. I've been accepted into a doctoral program. It's two years of research and one year. And one year of writing. With this one question, how are God's children spiritually formed, mature in him? And I've noticed it. I've just noticed it in church. I've noticed it in life. How is it that two people can be in church 20, and 30, 20 or 30 years studying God's word? And at the end of 20 or 30 years, one person, the grace quotient, the, the, the mercy quotient, loving their neighbor as themselves is higher than somebody else. For somebody else, is just, for them, it was just all Bible study. It was just all doctrine. They're using Scripture as a weapon to judge people and to condemn people. And another person is like in love with Jesus and people around. And I can tell you what it is. It's this issue of how you approach him. I don't know if you've ever thought of this. What Simon Peter is telling us, what the Scripture is telling us, that we draw near to him through his word. His word is God revealing himself to us in that moment of a quiet time is different than a Bible study. When you, when, you, when you draw near to him and you understand that it is a spiritual act of worship, it is coming into his presence. It is asking him to reveal himself to you. So Listen, so much of our conversation, my wife and I, so much of our conversation is like changed now. We, 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 uh, we walk every evening for like three to five miles. I don't do it for exercise. I just do it to be with her. <laughs> and so much of our conversation now is, hey, in your, with your time with the Lord, how is he revealing himself to you? What is he showing you? How does that affect us? How does that impact us? See, I'm telling you, I, I think this one principle is huge. That we go to the Word, not just to draw some things out, but we draw near to Him. And we grow near to Him with, so that we live life in knowledge, in love, in grace, in truth. And Simon Peter is coming to this place trying to help us to understand what happens in that moment 
Here's the second thing that he tells you. Not only should you make God priority in your life, the second thing is this. You've got to take God's word and really apply it to your life. Listen, in, in a relationship with him, it is just not to know it. It is to live it. It doesn't do you any good, like in, in marriage, just to know all the principles of marriage and never apply it, where there's never any intimacy, where you never get to know one another. It's just an intellectual exercise. It's just about knowledge. It's about rules and regulations and everything else. What, what, what Paul is trying to help them to understand is, is you take the word. Listen, our goal is, our goal is, is not just to know it, but to get it lived out in our life to where we become more and more like Christ the more that we draw near to him and his word, the more that we walk as believers, that the love quotient goes up in our life, the mercy quotient goes up in our life, the grace quotient goes up in our life. And God's goal in our life is to get it lived out in our life. And that's why we make it a priority. Then then Paul expresses some fear, just like any dad would. In verse 3, Paul says, but I fear that. So here's my fear. As the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your minds may be seduced from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And now all of a sudden he issues a warning. The reason you got to know God's word, the reason you got to draw near to him in worship, the reason you got to have him as a priority is because you're going to be tempted. You're going to be tempted and you may be easily deceived. I mean, this is huge what Paul is trying to express to them. And if you go all the way back to Genesis, Genesis chapter 3, you can read it for yourself. God put Adam and Eve like in the garden, remember that? And he gave them one commandment, and they couldn't keep that. I mean, he gave them one rule. Do not eat from the tree of good and knowledge and evil. Do not eat from that tree. And then all of a sudden, Satan comes along, and he deceives them. And he deceives them in three ways. And guess what? His strategy hasn't changed since then. This is still how he does it today. This is how he did it in the New Testament. This is how he does it today. And the first thing he did, he got Eve to question God's word. That that was just the first step. Verse 1, he says, Now the serpent was the most cunning in all the wild animals, and the Lord God had made. And so he said to the woman, Did God really say that? You can't eat of any tree in the garden. Does that really make sense that that's in the Bible? Did God really say that? Did God really say you couldn't eat from the tree? God is withholding good from you. Are you, cra- are you kidding me? We have progressed so much since then. We know so much more since then. Did he really say that? And then he moved quickly. When he got her to question God's word, he, he got her to deny God's word. Verse 4, no, you will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. And so he denied God's word. He says, what God said would happen is not going to happen, Eve. I can't even believe you would believe that. I mean, that is outdated. That is old stuff. I cannot even believe. And then the third thing he did, all of a sudden he inverted God's word. He reversed God's word. Verse 5, he says, in fact, God knows, Eve, that, if you, that when you eat, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Eve, i got to tell you, the, the opposite of what God said is true. Eve, bottom line, God is withholding good from you. Eve, there's no standard for right and wrong. There's no standard for morality. Same thing is being happened today, is happening today. You, you, can't, you can't trust those scriptures. Did God really say that? Did God really mean that? Do we really have the same scripture in our hands that they had? Can I, can I just tell you real quickly? Every time I go to Israel, 
I am shocked at the accuracy of God's word. I am shocked. I mean, I've been places that the scriptures talk. I've been places that Jesus has walked. Every time I walk away from Israel, one, I feel like I'm home. Second thing is this. I am shocked in the accuracy and the truth of the scriptures. Did God really say that would be a consequence if that happens? Did he really say love your neighbor as yourself? Did he really, did he really say Jesus is the only way? And the same thing is happening today. And then the third thing, listen, the third thing, and Paul just keeps helping them understand why this isn't so important. Why it's so important to make God a priority in your life and draw near to him, not just an intellectual study, but, a, but an act of worship because we're going to be tempted. And we're going to be tempted by things that come up. And then watch this. The third and the last thing he says, God's word must be a priority in your leader's life. So Paul now starts talking about, about the leader. He talked about you, and he talked about the pastor. He talked about you, he talked about the leader. And he says, God's word must be a priority in your leader's life. You need to know that he spends time in the word. You need to know that, that he's, he prays. You need to know character matters. When we started this journey together, like in this COVID shutdown, COVID crisis, and, and we entered this perfect storm, I actually thought it was funny. And I'm, a, and, I, and I'm ashamed to meet, admit it, but when all of a sudden, like the social media false prophets started rising up and making predictions about this, and God told me this in a dream, and God said this, and they made this prediction, and they made that prediction, and then all of a sudden, like their YouTube followers are going up, Facebook followers are going up, I, st I took out a yellow pad, and I'm like, this is crazy. And so I started documenting every prophecy that one of these guys would say, or, or ladies, every one of them. And I thought, this is hilarious. Who's going to believe this? And the day came when I realized this isn't funny. There are well-meaning Christians believing this. There are well-meaning Christians believing these dreams and revelations and things that they are saying. See, this is Paul's concern about false prophets that just rise up. And so watch this. I, we're just going to walk through the Scriptures. We're going to allow the Scriptures to speak. A true prophet, what Paul says, a true prophet preaches a familiar gospel. A false prophet, a false prophet introduces a new gospel. I mean, verse 4, he says, For if a person comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we did not preach or receive a different spirit which you had not received, or a different gospel, which you had not accepted, you put up with it splendidly. Now listen, that is like an all-time sarcastic, uh, cutting statement. He says, you know what? You put it up with it splendidly. You put it up without any objection. You put up with it without going back to Scripture. You put it up, in other words, you know what he's calling him? He says, you're gullible. He's telling them you're gullible. Remember Paul defined the gospel, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In case you're sitting here this morning and said, well, what is a gospel? What is a Here's the gospel. This is what Paul, this is his pure gospel. I'll just read it. Uh, chapter 15 in 1 Corinthians verse 1, and it says, Now I want to make clear to you, brothers and sisters, so he's talking to believers, the gospel I preached to you, which you had received, on which you have taken your stand, we stand on the word, we stand on the gospel, and by which you are being saved. If you hold to this message I preach to you, unless you believe in vain, for I passed on to you as most important what I also received, semicolon, so here's the gospel. Here's the simple gospel. 
that Jesus Christ died for your sins according, according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day, according to what? According to the Scriptures. And so He says, in case you're wondering, the Gospel is simply this. Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, came to this earth, lived a perfect life, went to the cross. He who knew no sin became sin for you. He took on your sin. He took on my sin. And he was crucified. And when he was crucified on the, on the cross, the veil in the Holy of Holies that separated God and man was torn from top to bottom so that now we have 24-7 access to him. And now we can approach him, not in fear, not in worry, but in confidence. And the, the veil was torn from top to bottom to where we have, we have direct access to him. And he died, he was buried, and on the third day he rose again. And he's at the right hand of the Father. He was raised to life imperishable. And because he was raised to life imperishable, one day we're going to be raised to life imperishable, and we're going to have eternal life. And he says that is a pure teaching of, God, of the gospel, that Jesus Christ came to the word, he, world. He died for your sins. He was dead, he was buried, and he was raised again the third day. Here's another thing that Paul said about a false prophet. He's a true prophet of the gospel, guess what, relies on that message. That's why Paul said over and over, as the scripture said, according to the scriptures, this is what the scripture said, a false prophet is always introducing a new Jesus and a new way to God. A false prophet is always saying, you know what, God's just at the mountain, at the top of the mountain. There's several paths, there's several trails, there's several ways to him. Whichever way you choose is okay, we all get to the same place. Scriptures never said that. Jesus in John 14, 6 says, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. He said, no one else died for you. No one else rose from the dead for you. No one else was ascended to the Father for you. And the only way you come to the Father is through me. If that sounds exclusive to you this morning, may I remind you that these are the words of Jesus Christ. Paul said in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, he says, and this is, there is salvation, and guess what? And no one else. For there is no, one, no other name under heaven given to the people by which you must be saved. See, false teachers, I'm just telling you, false prophets, false teachers are so casual with the truth. I, just real quickly, I just want you to understand church history. In, in, in the first century under the Roman Empire, the, the first believers, the first followers of Christ, they weren't crucified, they weren't martyred, they weren't executed, they weren't beaten and tortured because they followed Jesus. That wasn't why they were murdered and killed. That wasn't why they lost their life. The Roman Empire said, you know what, we believe in a lot of gods. Fact is, you can have multiple gods. They, if you want to add Jesus to the mix, that is okay with us. That's not why they were martyred. They were martyred, they lost their life because guess what, they said Jesus was the only way. And as a result of that, we're not going to bow down and worship Caesar. We're, gonna, we're not going to acknowledge any other God. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one goes to the Father except through him. And because of that, because of that, they lost their life because the Roman Empire believed that the enemy was this group of people that believed Jesus was the only way. And guess what? We are edging into a culture that believes the same thing that believes the enemy is a group of people that believes Jesus Christ is the only way to God. And this is why Paul is like so 
passionately trying to help them understand the mark, this issue, the mark of a false prophet, the mark of a teacher that comes to the place and claims another book, another teaching that is like equal with Scripture or above Scripture. And be careful. Just be careful. Be careful of that false prophet that is on social media, that is on YouTube, that is on Facebook, that is wherever they are that claims a divine revelation or claims a dream. Man, I thought, when I started on my legal pad, when I started charting out all the false prophecies, all the prophecies and these false prophecies, this is going to happen and this is going to happen, this is what's going to happen, I started listing them out, and I thought, surely when those things don't come true through this season, surely people are going to drop off and quit following them. No, their numbers kept going up. Their followers kept going up. It goes back to what Paul said. They came to this place that they were so gullible that they would immediately accept the word from anyone who made claims of divine revelation, special revelation, without ever taking it back to Scripture. That's why he's saying, make Scripture your foundation. Here's another one. A true prophet relies on substance and a false teacher relies on emotion or charisma. We are drawn to celebrities. We are drawn to a dynamic personality. We are drawn to charisma. And in verse 6, he says, he says, even if I am untrained in public speaking, I'm certainly not untrained in knowledge. Indeed, we have in every way made that clear to you and everything. And Paul's saying, you know what? I have content. And I take it directly back to the scriptures and I allow the scriptures to speak to you. Another thing that Paul said as we just walked through this, he said a a, a false prophet has a servant's heart. I'm sorry, a true prophet has a servant's heart, and a false prophet has has a greedy heart. He said for that false prophet, it's only about followers. It's only about money. It's only about wealth. It's only about generating all of that stuff. And, and he said in verse 7, he says, Or did I commit a sin by humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you for free of charge? What, what was help happening in their time is there were these false prophets who were claiming to be super apostles. They had a divine revelation that Paul didn't have. And Paul was uncomfortable with making claims and saying, I, I just need you to know I'm, I'm an apostle. Verse 9, he says, when I was present with you in need, I did not burden anyone since the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my needs. I have kept myself and will keep myself from burdening you. Here's another one. A true prophet exalts Christ and a false prophet only promotes himself. Verse 1, he says, I wish you would put up with me with a little foolishness, uh, with a little foolishness from me. Yes, please put up with me. And so Paul's like having to defend himself, and he was so uncomfortable. Verse 10, he goes on, and he says, As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be stopped in the regions of Achaia. And so he he was trying to help them to understand the difference between a true prophet and a false. Here's another one. Uh, A true prophet is transparent. A false prophet wears a mask. You know what? I need to come up with different terminology in this season. I'm not talking like a mass mask, right? <laughs> Someone's going to clip that on YouTube, and then, then it's going to go around. So I'm not talking about the mask that we wear. Not talk, I'm ta- a false prophet masquerades. How's that? Is that better? False prophet masquerades as someone else. Verse 13. 
For such people are false prophets, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. That's why God has to be a priority in your life. That's why you have to take everything back to the scriptures. That's why you test the spirits when someone claims divine revelation or a dream or whatever. And no wonder for Satan disguising himself as an angel of light. A true teacher does not have to masquerade as somebody else. A true preacher can be transparent. A true preacher, listen, you're going to want to know, does that individual spend time with God? Does that individual pray? Is that individual with us and serving alongside of us? Because, listen, with every false prophet, with every false teacher, there's always mystery around them. Be careful of those who appear to be super pious. Be careful of those who can never admit a weakness, who can never admit a failure, can, who never admit a sin, who can never admit that they're wrong, who can never admit that they are, prog- uh, that they are maturing in the Christian faith. Be- Listen, just beware. Just beware of those that leave an impression on you that they are just way more spiritual than you. And you can never live up to their standard. Be careful of that individual. To not be, that cannot be transparent with you and say, this is how the scriptures are transforming my life. This is how the scriptures are helping me, whether it's in marriage, whether it's in relationships, whether it's how you do life. Be careful of that individual. Just be careful of that individual. I'll tell you a quick story because we've had like no humor in this sermon. <laughs> I just feel like we need some at the moment and we'll close. There's a story about this pastor that was, was walking home from church one day, and three boys had, like, surrounded this dog. And he thought they were trying to hurt the dog. He thought they were trying to intimidate the dog. So he walked over to them and said, Young man, what are you guys doing? And so Billy looked at the preacher and says, Ah, oh, says, we all want the dog. We don't know who the owner of the dog is. We all want the dog. So we have a contest. Whoever can tell the biggest lie gets the dog. And the preacher looked at them and said, Well, that's ridiculous. When I was your age, I never even thought about telling a lie. And Billy looked at his buddy and says, well, guess the preacher gets the dog. (laughs) Be careful. Be careful of that individual that can never admit they're wrong. Can never confess the sin to you. Can never say, hey, please forgive me. Please forgive me for my part. Please, please forgive me for that attitude. Jesus said this, and Jesus spoke to them in John 8, 12. He says, I'm the light of the world, and anyone who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That whenever we follow Jesus, we no longer walk in darkness. We walk in the light, and may we know what that is. Would you bow your heads with me and close your eyes?